Are you suggesting that I might be incapable of following Starfleet regulations or that I would disobey your orders? Welcome to Rediscovery, the Star Trek recap podcast, which won't shoot spines out of its headphones at you. Pew, 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 <laughs> pew. I'm joined on the bridge by my firm but fair captain, Carla Donnelly. Greetings, Captain. Hello, Benjamin. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I was pointing at you when I was miming. <laughs> that You can't see this, listeners, but that's what was happening. It's okay. I got a bit excited. We're going to get excited this episode. I can feel it. I can feel it in my bones. Now, The Sounds of Thunder follows up episode four and Obol for Charon to forward the story of the Kelpians and, like that episode, combines action and the kind of high-concept, moral quandary with a twist science fiction that Star Trek is famous for. Plus, it's a time for Doug Jones as Saru to shine. This episode is all about our favourite First Officer and how his life is changing forever. As Hugh Colber readjusts to his newly created and super buff, by the way, body, (laughs) and Saru wonders what changes are occurring within him, a new red burst is detected over a planet outside Federation space, Saru's homeworld of Kaminar. When Discovery arrives in orbit, the predator Ba'ul species refuses their hails, and Pike orders Burnham to go down to the planet to make official first contact and ask if the Kelpians know anything about the Red Angel. Saru, displaying uncharacteristic aggression, argues with Pike that he should be the one to go, and eventually, after extracting a promise that he won't share the truth about the Vaharai and start a war, Pike agrees, suggesting the pair start with Saru's own village. On the surface, Michael and Saru meet Saru's sister, Sarana, now priest of their village since the death of their father. She is happy to see her brother, who was presumed dead, and accepts his story of his travels among the stars but grows angry when she thinks he has only returned because he wants to ask about the angels. The Ba'ul, meanwhile, have noticed their arrival on the planet and set off alarms. Sarana angrily tells Saru to leave and never return, and he and Michael beam back to Discovery. In orbit, the Ba'ul finally show themselves, demanding that Discovery return Saru to them and leave. Despite being ordered to stand down, Saru reveals to the Ba'ul that he has survived the Vaharai and knows the truth about the so-called balance they maintain, and the Ba'ul become even more insistent that he be turned over, sending multiple of their advanced ships to surround Discovery. Ordered off the bridge, Saru goes to the transporter room and turns himself over. He and Sarana are brought aboard one of the Ba'ul ships, which promptly vanish from Discovery's sensors. On board the frankly creepy, alien-esque ship... Sarana and Saru face one of the Ba'ul, a really gross alien life form appearing to be constructed of tar-like liquid. The Ba'ul reveals that Saru is the first Kelpian to have transcended the Vaharai in 2,000 years, and it must stay that way. As Michael, Ariam, and Tilly unearth from the sphere's history, once Kelpians transcend Vaharai, they become the predatory species, and the Ba'ul were their prey for thousands of years. Saru and Sarana must now be put to death so the Kelpians never learn of their power. In the most boss move so far in this series, in place of his threat ganglia, Saru has now grown extendable fins with spines that shoot from it, and Saru attacks the Ba'ul with full force. The Ba'ul unleashes droids to kill both Kelpians, but Saru harnesses his fearless psycho strength and breaks himself free to save Sarana. 
Saru rigs the Ba'ul's technology to communicate with Discovery and together they decide to bring all Kelpians through the Vaharai simultaneously by transmitting a modified version of the Sphere Lifeform's signal across the Ba'ul infrastructure on Kamina in order to save the Kelpians from annihilation. The Ba'ul attack, powering up the same infrastructure ready to wipe out the Kelpians when something all-powerful appears and disrupts the Ba'ul signal. It's the Red Angel, and thanks to Saru's enhanced vision, we finally learn that it is a humanoid in a suit, technology unknown to the Federation. The Red Angel is an entity from the future manipulating events. Ben, that was a very brief overview of what happened to this episode. I couldn't help but think of you when we first saw the Ba'ul. Did you love this non-humanoid entity? Well, well, well for start, I... It- is it non-humanoid? I don't know. I mean, the thing it most That's reminded me it. of it, it was kind of like <laughs> it was kind of like a mix of like the girl from the ring and the skin of evil that kills Tasha Yar. It was yes. like it was like those two things sort of mashed together. And the guy who is in the suit um, is a I think he's Spanish. He's worked with Doug Jones before, and he's it was he, very Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, well, he's he's worked on some of the same stuff with Doug Jones, and he he played the Slender Man in the Slender Man movie. Ah, if, if you yeah, know about okay, that, which yeah. is I don't know, I don't want to go there, but anyway. <laughs> Um, so super creepy, but I've got to tell you, during that opening monologue, when Saru's like learning that he's, he is getting superpowers, I was right. He's totally got superpowers. Um, my first thought was, oh, you know who the Ba'ul are? They are the Kelpians. Kelpians go through the Vaharai and they become the Ba'ul. They're not a separate species at all. They don't get killed. They just go up to the spaceship. That's what I thought was going to happen. And that isn't what happened, but... I have to say they look pretty similar. Like they're all they're tall and lanky and they're very skinny and they've well, got long limbs. They come from the same planet. So, so that does make sense. But yeah. they're so creepy. Like how could so those guys gross. be prey species? Like they're so gross. And what's with that tar? I want to know more about them. That's why I say non humanoid, because is it all just one blob? Yeah, I was gonna say, do you think they're made out of the tar or do you think yeah. they just live inside it? I think Oh, who knows? We don't know. I mean, that's it's, a pretty good defense mechanism. How, do, how the fuck do the Kelpians hunt them down and eat them if they're, like, hiding within and this weird goop? Is it like Odo? Like, if they're shapeshifters or whatever, like, why are they choosing to be that shape? So they're either non-humanoid Targu mm. that pop out in gross figures. Yeah. <laughs> or they're gross figures that live in Targu. <laughs> I mean, look, I think they make these decisions on purpose so that we can just, like... <laughs> make up our own answers and have endless hours of discussion trying to figure it out. <laughs> it did feel, I mean, yes, yeah, still, two arms, two legs, even though it was dripping in goo. Yeah. Um, but I did appreciate that. My big question was, it's such a dumb thing to think about straight away, but I'm like, how did they build that spaceship? They're made out of goo. Well, well, they seem to be solid. Like, like they move around and stuff. Like, yeah. they got fingers and yeah. glowing red eyes. Mm. But is that even really what they look like? Or maybe do they, mm. like, take on a form appropriate? Like, it's, well, it's that's that old story. Well, that's what I'm story. saying, yeah. Yeah, I don't it's know. It's like Odo. But w- in whatever they really are, they they really seem to have been at the mercy of the Kelpians once upon a time. Mm. Because the Kelpians kind of get to a point in their lives where they go through adolescence. And just like all adolescents, they get real angry. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, but also they have, like, fucking spikes and super strength. Well, is it super strength or is it just so... I guess this is a good question, yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm studying psychology and so what happens when you have damage to your amygdala or you have a under underperforming, they say, or undeveloped 
amygdala Mm. is this kind of stuff like when you don't have when you're not afraid when you don't have appropriate fear responses you have the potential to be able to put yourself into situations really dangerous risky situations and either not conceptualize it or if you have some sort of psychopathic tendencies or sociopathic tendencies you can really push it to the limit right so i think um it's also like hooked in with what's called executive function, which is like the frontal lobe, being able to moderate one's thoughts and one's actions. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's what it does feel like. It feels teenage. Yeah. Like he's kind of got this power that he can't, mod- he hasn't learned how to moderate it yet. I was really worried where that was going to go because I didn't want us to lose Saru because that composure and that thoughtfulness and, you know, that empathy, which is what they were talking about two episodes ago in A Noble for Charon, is so much a part of what I love about him as a character. He's so different from a lot of first officers that we've seen before. And sure. he's very staid and he's very not, well, he is reserved as well, but he's also just very, let's do the right thing. Let's not rush in. Uh, and, and that is partly out of fear in his case. But I just, yeah, I was really worried that they were going to change him into like angry Hulk McAngerson or something. I don't <laughs> know. Um, and I really like that by the end of the episode, he'd already turned it around. Sure. And if there was anything that he was going to be angry about, it was, it was this. Yeah, it's pretty You know, like his on. whole life has been a lie. I've got to tell you that the, there's still something that doesn't quite make sense to me about this whole setup. What is it? So when Saru is on Discovery, we know that for most of the time he's been in Starfleet, he has had this feeling that the Ba'ul are oppressing his people and that they kill them. Mm. And we learn through, you know, the, the short trek and the couple of episodes we've had this season that most Kelpians, they believe in this thing called the balance, which means they, they go through the Vaharai and they think they're going to go insane and die horribly or they can be mercy killed by the Ba'ul. But that's not really a predator relationship. Like, they're not eating them, right? And it seems like... But I think they... Th- I, I, I kind of felt like they were. They thought maybe, they were because Saru mentioned somewhere that they're more like a cattle kind of species. Yeah, but I but they're not though. I mean, when you see them, like they're this sort of. I mean, it is a weird sci-fi but kind they of concept. But they don't know what happens to them when they go. Well, when yeah. They... So this is this is my point. They don't know, mm. right? They're told one thing. They're told that they're sort of given this mercy killing. Well, we think that's what they're told. It's not one hundred percent clear what they're actually told, but they believe that they have to submit themselves, um, and they get taken up to wherever the bow will take them, and then you never see them again. So you don't know if they're dead or what happens to them, which is why I thought it was possible that the bow was like this species of evolved Kelpians, but for some reason they keep their unevolved folk <laughs> like in this primitive, like no technology state on the planet because they think it's important for some reason. It's and kind of like reverse Soylent Green. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, you know. But we didn't see what – we didn't, but still we don't know. Like do they just kill them? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, the, those robot things did seem to be pretty – like, surely they don't just stick knives in their face like that robot thing was going to do. Mm. Um, I don't know. So I thought that was pretty intense. And then there's the whole question of, is it really okay to force an entire species to go through this evolution thing? I've got what the fuck General Order 1 written down here. Well, I mean, they kind of get around that a little bit at the start, at least in terms of talking to them. Yeah, but also General Order 1 is about interfering in yeah. a species' natural development. That's the cornerstone yeah, of totally. what it is, right? Yeah, and Saru basically has that one line where he says, well, I think this is what the, the Red Burst brought us here to do. And Pike goes, okay, well, we'll do it then. And you're like, hang on a minute. Do you take your orders from Starfleet or do you take your orders from the mysterious Red Angel? 
Like when they did it in New Eden, when they interfered, they were saving these people without otherwise interfering in their culture, right? They just stopped them from being wiped out by, um, you know, fixing the problem with the radioactive rocks falling from space. Um, but in this episode, they're completely changing the evolutionary course of two species. But I think they thought that it was either that or that they become extinct. Mm. So, oh, I think their justification is good. Yeah, you well, know, and the Baul. The other thing is the Baul are a post-warp civilization, and they're kind of keeping the Kelpians in this, you know, sort of pre-warp state. Um, but they're clearly smart enough to understand post-warp technology because. You know, well, because Saru worked it out for himself from bits that fell off, and they've seen post-warp technology. It's not mm-hmm. like they haven't been exposed to it. So, and and this is what I was saying before: like it felt really kind of flimsy that the Federation shouldn't be interfering with the Baul at least and saying this is not okay. And you- now we find out that they did try that, and the Baul said, "No, fuck off. We're not interested." You got your wish. You were you were side eyeing this the whole time. I was, and now it's now I still side eyed a little bit. I still I still think there's like a. I don't know. It, it makes sense. I'm I'm being a bit picky, but it's because I love Saru and and I want his story to be the best possible. And it is great, and I really loved it. This was an awesome just, episode for Saru. I'm just picking a little bit. That's all. But that's I okay. really loved it. I had that's such fair. a good time. I had such a good time in this episode. It was wonderful, and it was really it was interesting to see it. Like the B plot was almost non-existent. No, because the B plot was just Hugh Colber going, "Oh look, I'm all buff now, and I don't have my scar, and I'm conflicted because I've come back from the dead." Well, the B plot really, if you want to loosely tie it all together, is transformation. Yeah, that's right. You know, so you've got Saru's transformation. Interestingly, as well, Saru finds himself in a similar situation to Michael at the beginning of Discovery, which is going against all her cultural training. Mm. So Michael had that moment to back Saru down off the bridge and Saru was ejected from the bridge and disobeyed orders exactly like Michael and went and did this cataclysmic thing for a whole race of people too. Yeah, I do. I mean, I can see the the differences in the situation, so I can understand why Saru's probably not going to get court-martialed. <laughs> yeah. But still, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. That's a great sort of parallel for them. As, and, as you know, like almost siblings themselves to have gone through now a very similar situation. And Hugh looks perfect. He does. It's super buff. He looks perfect. Like they've got his hair just right and I feel oh. like they just powdered him all over and they made him just look the best version of Hugh. Because like when, when he came back, like last episode, I really I quite enjoyed that the, they made it immediately apparent that this was a weird process because in the network he'd clearly been like disheveled and unkempt and he's like hair's growing out and he's got a beard and he's all grubby. And then when they remake him, he goes, he, he's he looks exactly like he did when he died. He's got the shaved hair. Mm. He's got, you know, he's all clean. He's, and I'm like, what the? This also, actually, this this episode raised some questions about that process again for me because the thing <laughs> I'd forgotten last episode is they made a big deal about DNA mm. when they were talking to it and they didn't have his DNA. Like when, when he was created in the mycelial network, his energy was transferred through. But oh, not any no, the kind tear. of. Did you see it was the tear? But it was no, that was metaphorical tear. <laughs> no, they wasn't it real? His tear didn't get transferred but into that, the network. I feel like that was what was the bridge. Oh well, that was what was brought through the network. I thought it was an emotional bridge. No, I thought because it, it, it's his energy that gets transferred, not anything physical. But I think that that was what you think was, it was his tear. Yeah, that is kind of beautiful in a way. Yeah. 
but that's weird. a really cheesy. But tears don't have any DNA in them. Yes, they do, don't they? Everything has DNA in them. No, not off your body. No, not everything. Oh well, we'll have to figure. Just that cells. Out. There's Just... no tears aren't made of cells. But they would have cells in them. They're coming out of your uh, eyes. They well, yeah, they would have like bits of skin cell and stuff in them, I guess. It's just, it's just liquid, you know. It's just, it's just liquid that is stored in a we'll reservoir have to get in your body. A, we'll, we'll have to get an anatomist. And yeah, I'll ask. I'll ask Liz on Pratt Chat. She studied medicine. She'll know. She'll know what tears are. But anyway, <laughs> we all know what tears are. What are We've tears? been watching Discovery. <laughs> We've cried a few. Um, but yeah, it, it, it. They mention in this episode the importance of DNA and that the reason that he doesn't have his scar is that. They had a sample of his DNA. Some I don't know where that came. I can't remember where that came from. Oh no, Hugh um, Stamets had like a hair or something. I forget what the deal was. But he they had would some, have it all on fire. He had some weird DNA yeah. thing in the last episode. I forget what it was. And so they needed that to properly recreate him using the transport pod, which doesn't really make sense given how it's supposed to work. But anyway, the, so the idea is he's been recreated in that moment, but also from his DNA, which means. It's kind of like in Red Dwarf when Dave Lister, um, like gets his DNA altered and then he gets put back together again, and that's that happens in one episode. But there's an episode previous to that where he mentions he's had his appendix out, and there's an episode after that where he gets his appendix out again. Mm. And the fan explanation is very simply: well, when you get your body changed into one thing and then you got rewritten according to your DNA back, where well, your DNA says you should have an appendix, so you had another one. Mm. And just like the previous one, it was likely to get inflamed. So it could be could be like that. That is the most serious use of a Red Dwarf reference <laughs> I have I ever made. I think possible. I think possible. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> I've talked about DNA too much, but I, so I thought that was that was curious. And I think there's still a lot to explore there about what the hell is going on. And and I think as it goes on, for me, the parallel now with Hugh's character is I, I think he's going to go through... I'm, I'm going to be interested to sort of compare it to Buffy's journey after she dies and comes back from the dead mm. and how similar it is and, and what he feels about it. And, I mean, you know, he hasn't been in an afterlife. He's been in a weird kind of other thing. But, I'm, but yeah, so it's hard to know. It's an afterlife of sorts, I guess. Well, it is, well this is a question, actually. Did he, is he... Was he ever actually dead or was he... Like somehow transfer because they're treating it like he, he, was alive he wasn't the whole dead. Time. He was alive yeah. in the other thing, but his body was dead. And how do you know it's not a copy of him? And which doesn't make him any less real or less Hugh. But that means that there is a Hugh who did die. You know, so there's it's one of those weird sci-fi situations where it's like, wow, this is not a thing we'll ever or probably never have to figure out in real life. But it's such a weird situation that it's fun to think about. I say fun. It's also very sad. Interest, interesting. It's interesting, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm really interested to see where that goes. I really liked this episode. Yeah, me too. I had, I, I really loved it. It felt really eventful, but I don't have much more to say about it, actually, beyond yeah. what happens to the Kelpians now that they're all predators. Well, and now they've like all got superpowers, but the Baal still have this huge amount of technology, but they don't have the network of, the oh, yeah, they're watchful all eyes. But what's going to happen to all of them together as predators? I don't know. Hopefully they'll still be well, peaceful. I think the implication is that they were predators, but they're talking like thousands of years previously, And they're only right? predators to that species rather than everyone. Yeah. There was a bowel predator joke in there somewhere, but I couldn't make it work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I uh, my, my feeling is that you know, they've had this, and it's more than 2,000 years. It was like 2,400 years or something, I think, when they're looking through the sphere data. But I, I, I liked the implication that, 
you know, they've had this period of peaceful existence now. And even though they now have this sort of suppression of their fear response and they have this, like, arguably heightened strength or maybe, you know, it was just a stressful situation and they're always as strong as a human being. I mean, they're bigger than human beings, Mm. or taller at least. Uh, But now they have these superpowers of, like, shooting spines and who knows what else. Like, I really hope that there's more than that, although that's that would be enough. That's pretty cool. Uh, but um, that they've had this experience and that's changed them culturally, mm. you know, uh, because it's kind of – and, it, you know, and they have evolved in a sense. Like they've evolved in the Pokemon sense rather than in the actual natural selection sense. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of cool and who knows what they'll be as people now. But their culture is still the same, and it all happened for them very, very quickly as well. No, but their whole ideological structure and framework has been well destroyed. That's true. The balance has gone. But they, and they talk about creating a new balance. <laughs> but the bow will never agree <laughs> to that in this episode. Every time it made me think of shoes. Every time <laughs> <laughs> it's just bad. New balance. New balance. Oh no! No product placement here, please. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm curious to find out what will happen with them, and I don't know. Hopefully, that we we'll will. get to check in on check in on them again. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think I think what happens to Saru will be what we mostly get to see, and he's sort of at the start of that journey too. Because for him, he's sort of going through it. I don't know. You get the impression that his process of Vaharai was kind of closer to what the natural one is. It was just triggered early by the sphere's signal. But the everyone on the planet, they all had theirs like accelerated so that it happened immediately Mm. and i wonder if there's something else there that means like they recover from it more quickly as well i don't know there's a lot of questions there um but certainly serana doesn't seem at all different afterwards like she's not angry she's quite fine she seems very friendly and nice and she likes (laughs) looking at her planet from space so how good was she by the way so amazing yeah what a great what a great and um, they're all so softly spoken and yeah it was beautiful. I mean, now they can just kill you with spikes that fly out of their face. That's right. That was pretty I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty good. Uh, but the Ba'ul have got, like, force shields and lasers and spaceships, and they live in tubs of goo. So, who knows? And they may be made of tubs of goo. They might be. Uh, so, I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah, the, the main other thing I wanted to talk about this episode was it was also a nice episode for Ariam. Yes, Indeed. Uh, we also get some kind of knowledge that she's – well, we know that she's mechanoid AI. She's, yeah, part robotic in some way. But, yeah, there's that quote at the beginning where Tilly says, without Ariam, it could have taken months. Yeah. So she's instrumental to crunching the data. And we don't know if that means, like, she can plug herself in or if she's just really good at understanding data structures. <laughs> well, like, she's the spore drive operator, so hmm. we can only assume that – Although, She's integrated somehow. Yeah, although whenever we see them activate the spore drive, it really consists of pressing one button, so I don't know. <laughs> is that the, Is that just the dimmer that says black alert? <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. But then it's usually Detma who gets to press that button. Is it? Yeah, and uh, Ariam's doing joke. something else. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but... <laughs> Shall but, we short chance? I think, I think we should. Right. Now it's time for Rediscovery Short Chats, where we talk news, trivia, and anything related to Discovery... And also answer any questions you have for us. Follow our socials and get in touch. Now, Captain, we have a few things to follow up this week. Holy dooly, as they say in the Starfleet. Do they? Do they? <laughs> yes. I mean, I believe Pike it's, says that. It's secret Captain language. Uh-huh. Um, we got a ton of feedback um, about 
the last episode and also our reactions to it, or specifically mine. Mm. Um, I just want to briefly, uh, we can't read it all because honestly, there was so much. We love you. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. There were some heartfelt, beautiful, very long, detailed messages, and it really made me think about things differently. How about you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, you know, when you do a podcast, there's often no feedback. It's just silent. Like you just mm. don't hear. You don't know how many people are listening because the stats are weird and you just don't. And so hearing from you, listeners, has been wonderful. Um, and particularly, yeah, on this subject, as you say, Carla. The gist of it is, is that after Hugh died last year, apparently there was a press conference and there was, you know, a, a lot of promises made on Twitter and Wilson Cruz saying that he's not dead, he will be back. And uh, there's been a lot of kind of interviews and stuff. And then now we get, then we had him in the posters. So there's been a lot of fans that have been like, but we've been known this has been happening for so long. And that's great that you knew that. But for me, I didn't know any of that back history. I also don't think it's necessary to know that kind of level of stuff. Like I should just have to know what's presented to me on TV. So I sort of just take them at their word, which is what they present on television. So I still think it was unnecessary. Yes, everybody on Discovery has had an absolutely shit time of it. Like no one has escaped. But I think that this is an area that they could have just left alone and it would have been fine. Mm. Yeah, and I felt like when when he died originally, like we didn't get a funeral. No. There wasn't a big morning episode. I mean, Stamets went through some stuff. But mostly when he was in the network meeting what we all, what I certainly assumed was like a weird construct of the network in his mind to help guide him through it. I didn't ever think for a second, this is really Hugh. Right. Or some version of him that could come back. The strong message from the show now is this is Hugh. This is, he is back. He may have been changed by his experience, but it's the same person. And I agree with you. Like when there's all this commentary around it outside of the show, I, I shouldn't need to watch that and read that. You know, mm. it's like it's like when J.K. Rowling says Dumbledore is gay and then none of the actual on-screen or in-text stuff in the book ever says that. And so you're like, does that count? I don't think that counts, J.K. And that, what, you have to take their word for it? Like, yeah. And for this, it's like if you do something which is like your most shocking moment of your show, you've set it up to be, you know, the pivot of the most shocking moment of the show, but then you have to immediately turn around and say that it's not real and that he isn't dead and that he is coming back. It just feels very messy and ham-fisted to me and that they didn't really understand like how big the backlash was going to be. And honestly, if you have to do that much work in the background, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, I feel like there's going to be some sort of Buffy-esque journey. And I think really the problem was that he died and then it felt like, apart from seeing him in the network, it wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. I don't know. And, uh, That's or, interesting. And it never felt like a big deal for anyone except Stamets. I also feel like, in a related way, they've revealed that they were actually married, but they've done it with two lines of dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Very offhand, or even maybe just one line. Yeah. He gets referred to in last episode, and I missed it the first time I watched it. He gets referred to as a widower, mm. and I thought that was possibly metaphorical, but no, apparently, no, they're really married. And then there's another line, but but he never, they never referred to each other as, you know, that's my husband, or, you know, I mean, and look, maybe 
in the Star Trek future, it's just not really a big deal. We don't hear that much about people who are, I mean, well, we sometimes do when they're like Betazoids, for example, um, the big <laughs> hullabaloo about marriage there. But but it's, and, and you know, Riker and Troy get married. So marriage is still a thing in the future. But I think once you're married, it's not that, nobody really feels like I making a big deal out of I it. I think it's more about couples serving on the same ship. Yeah, so they keep it low key. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. So I think let's just put that to bed. I'm happy he's back. Yeah. Still got to be a side eye. He's looking beautiful, which is, you know, a good thing. So let's see where this goes. Yeah. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. me too. I'm yeah. happy. I feel like this episode was a real pivot in some kind of other different direction. So we'll hmm. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to talk about? Yeah, look, we, we heard from uh, Adam Ford, listener of the show. Thank you, Adam, uh, who wanted to tell us that while there's nothing else really on TV that, and, and nothing canon that is more backstory for Pike and more adventures of him and the Enterprise pre-Captain Kirk, there is a whole comic book series um, from back in the day which explores that whole thing. And it, it's apparently it's out of print. It's a bit hard to find, but he says it's really good, and I, I trust his opinion on that. So if you're interested in more adventures of Captain Pike, go and search out those comic books. Um, it sounds like they're really cool. So, yeah, I, I'd be interested awesome. to read those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and remember, it's written way before uh, Discovery, so a completely different take on what Captain Pike is like, so that could be awesome. Yeah, I'm keen to read those. All right, I have two things. I always say this. Um, This was shot at the same time as the short trick. Oh, yeah, I did hear that, yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense. So everything that you're saying was true. You get a tick this week, Ben. I did all right, didn't I? Yeah. Thanks, Carla. And then we need to talk about the uh, nude butts. Mm. We had a lot of feedback about Star Trek nude butts, hashtag as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have T'Pol and Trip when they sleep together for the first time. Slight spoiler for me because I wasn't up to that, but sounds good. Mm. And uh, verified by screen caption. Uh, we also have apparently Picard when he was tortured, but Ben and I don't really remember that, so we've got to go back and watch well, it. Well, I remember it, but I don't remember seeing the his butt. butt. Yeah. Like, because I knew he was naked. He's like a strung scandalous. up nude, and you yeah. do see him from behind, but I don't remember if you see his, his ass or if you just see him from like the torso upwards. Um, and like, that's not, that's not a fun time to see somebody's <laughs> butt. That's not okay. Not for you. Um, <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> It was non-consensual torture, <laughs> Carla. It was not okay. Okay, yes. Yeah, um, Excuse me. And, uh, yeah, so, um, and, and I mean, look, you know, we have to say that uh, we don't want to necessarily objectify <laughs> our friendly neighbourhood discovery doctor because uh, it was not, he was not having a, a necessarily a great time when no. he arrived nude either. He was sort of in the fetal position on the floor going, I've <laughs> just been recreated through a weird alien goo No, pod. we're not objectifying. We're just quantifying. Yeah, yes. So, in actually in Discovery. Oh, really? In the first season, when they're all on Klingon, and Giorgio goes and has a threesome with those two sex workers, he shows his butt. That's right. And isn't he like an Orion? Is he green? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, I'd so, forgotten about that. Yeah, there you go. Oh, wow. There and there's go. one more butt, but it's only half a butt, it's a mm-hmm. cheek. A butt cheek. Okay. <laughs> and that was when Q is banished from the continuum and they sent him nude to the Enterprise. Oh, wow. Yeah, but we only, we only see a cheek. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, chronologically, it's nearly the first naked butt mm. because, you know, Trip and T'Pol is earlier 
And certainly you see them in their underwear all the time, but as I we discussed. <laughs> Whoa, that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. I just have one more thing. Michael was in a different outfit this episode, which was really weird. I don't know why. Maybe they just like pulled her out of being off duty, but she was in this like white top and grey slacks. I noticed slacks. that too. She does like to get out of the official uniform. It was kind of like, I think there's a white undershirt for the Discovery Star Trek uniform and mm. she's just sort of got the jacket off because she was kind of like not on official bridge duty. But it still seems a bit weird because everybody else is wearing the full uniform the whole time. They're doing other stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I did notice that too. That was that was a bit unusual. And also that Tyler has a beard on Discovery. Beards are not fit Starfleet regulation. Uh, uh, I don't know that they're not like anti-Starfleet regulation. Uh, I mean, I feel like everyone is clean shaven. Well, not in, well, certainly not by the next gen era because Riker grows a beard oh, and yeah, nobody's worried about that. Um, and but you, but you're right, most people are. I think this is because you know Americans are distrustful of beards. But actually, that that reminds me. I did want to say something about Ash because he's super paranoid in this episode. Like he's really. I don't want to say he's drunk the Section Thirty One Kool Aid because, but I was listening to that scene and thinking he's he's much more cynical than I remember. But then by the end of that scene, he kind of says, "You know, the war has like screwed us up." You know. Oh, I've written that down because it was such a cheesy, terrible line. Ben. Yeah, and it was some of us are still torn apart. Ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it was a bit over the top, wasn't it? But it, but it, it does seem. I mean, how do you feel about that? Is that is that? Do you buy that change in his character? Because he was such a kind of. I was like, is he? I just think everybody's sexy for everyone. I'm like, why does he hate Pike so much? But um, because of Pike the relationship like that he's developed with Michael. Well, Pike doesn't like him. Remember, because Pike Pike yeah, doesn't like Section Thirty One. That's right, and he's kind of like commandeered him with no choice so he's right to be tetchy yeah um i just think he's tetchy because of that yeah fair uh, i only have one more thing even though that's it. probably like my fifth thing what do you got i hated the direction of this episode oh really tell me the camera direction was like being on a roller coaster oh, it was yeah. spinning around it was wobbly like it was action cam. it was like going back it was going forward it was just always moving and i had serious Motion sickness after watching this episode. Yeah. It was crap. No, I was, I'm down with that. And also they did your hated thing. They splashed water on the lens of the camera. Oh, what? I didn't see it. Oh, they that's did. good. Probably because I was too nauseous. It wasn't blood. There was water got splashed. What it was one of the scenes on, on Kamina. Um, and uh, the other thing, um, the other thing that I did, I noticed this episode is they've done this a few times. They have this really long, like voiceover monologues. Hate it. And the first episode one was fine because it's like, let's set up the whole series. And it was that cool story about the girl like throwing the stuff and, and the, causing the Milky Way. Um, that's the worst retelling of that story ever. But it was it was cool, right? It was mm. interesting. And now we have these really long, heartfelt, emotional monologues. Uh, they're just a bit too long. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, a bit I, too much. I like so. I like the idea of them, but I feel they've outstayed their welcome now. And I hope they don't keep doing those. Um, this one at least was punctuated. Like they stopped it and then had a bit of a scene, like when Saru's in the <laughs> med bay and he talks to Colbert and then he goes and talks to the doctor who very helpfully was like, how do you pronounce that thing that happened to you? And he's like, Vaharai. He's like, oh, thank you for reminding the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was, uh, yeah I thought that was fun. I was like fun. so unprofessional. Uh, but yeah, she's like, I'm like, you're a Starfleet officer. It's like, learn how to pronounce someone's culturally important <laughs> words. Like, if I can learn to do it. That's exactly what I felt. I was like, Jesus, ship shape, lady, come yeah. on. But I agree with you. Like, that, that first scene, 
where it's like oh. circling around them. That just went on forever. I was like, why forever. are you doing this? And they've done that once or twice this season already, but it was much shorter in the other episodes where they did it. And this one just kept going. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I do just want to talk about the title of the episode. Okay. Because we haven't talked about that much before. And probably I'll talk about the episode titles in general when we get towards the end of the season. But I, I, did, I don't normally look at what the episode title is going to be, but I was looking at a list of episodes just to remind myself of the previous episode titles. And oddly, it had two or three of them in advance, and this was one of them. And uh, I, I really thought this was going to be an episode about time travel because one of the really famous uh, influential stories about time travel is called The Sound of Thunder. Oh, that's interesting. And it's a story where it's, it's about a time travel company that sends people back in time to hunt dinosaurs. And a guy, it's where the famous like treading on a butterfly thing comes from because this guy goes back and you have to stay on this specially built path they've built so that you don't disrupt any of the life forms. And he gets off the path and he treads on a butterfly and completely changes history. And then he comes back to the future and everything's fucked up. So um, I thought, oh, so they called it the sounds of thunder. It's going to be a reference to that. There's going to be time travel stuff. Um, well, it was. And there was, right at the end, like they confirmed that the Red Angel is some sort of time traveller. Yeah. Nice work, Carl. That's a tick for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I had a couple of moments in this episode where I thought things and then almost immediately the show confirmed that my thoughts were correct and I felt <laughs> so good about myself. And I was like, oh, no, you, you knew I was going to think that. Like, that's not me being clever. That's... <laughs> That's you that's doing your job. being very clever. <laughs> you being clever. And it was when, you know, Saru looks at the Red Angel and you see the suit and I'm like, oh, it's like a, it's like a suit of armor. It's like, a, it's like Iron Man in there. What's going on there? And then they go, yeah, it was a humanoid wearing some sort of armor. And I was like, oh, cool. yeah, okay, I wasn't being clever. <laughs> they were deliberately showing us that. But I still felt like validated. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. It's and exciting. I, yeah. I got to say, I did just do a cheeky Google while we were talking and I found a picture of Picard during that scene, like during the five lights. And I don't think you see his butt, but he is nude and they've positioned like a little thing on the Cardassian desk in such a way that you can't see, you know, Patrick Stewart's actual bits. But you can see, <laughs> as one of my friends uh, famously described it to me, the line suggesting penis. <laughs> and I've got to say, I didn't remember how ripped... Uh, <laughs> Patrick Stewart is in this scene. Like, he's dressed in a body double. No, it's you can see his face. I'm it's joking, him. I'm joking. You kind of do see a bit of side butt uh, in that you I see the side of his time. torso. Just, I <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just, I was just like, I'm pretty sure you don't see his butt, and I just, thought, I just have. We a quick should just look. get screenshots and put them on the website. We, 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 we can. Butt content. <laughs> You've been listening to Rediscovery. You'll find links to all the creatives involved on our website, rediscoverypodcast.com. And we'd love to connect with you. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Rediscovery Pod. Rediscovery is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. Find more entertainment for your ears at SplendidChaps.com.